Welcome to our webinar, Rebellion in Colombia, which is sponsored by UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition. My name is Margaret Kimberly, and I am a member of the coordinating committee of UNAC, as well as an editor and columnist at blackagendareport.com. Please go to the UNAC website at unacpeace.org for your group to join our coalition or to receive emails as an individual. When you go to our site, you will see our activities, statements, past conferences, webinars, and the work of our Youth Against Empire group. Uh, if you have any questions, you can email us, unacpeace at gmail.com. So we are here today, uh, we've gathered a great group of panelists to talk about what is happening in Colombia, South America. Just to put you in the perspective of where we are, this is Colombia here, the Northwest of South America. It is bordered by Panama, which was part of Colombia at one time, Panama, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, and Brazil. The country is considered of strategic importance to the U.S. It is a partner in NATO. Now, the fact that it is considered of strategic interest to the U.S. does not mean anything positive, which is what we will hear about from our panelists. We have four. Our first panelist is James Jordan, who will be followed by Charo Mina Rojas, then William Kamakaro and Ajamu Baraka. And we're here because of recent events in that country, a general strike, austerity, ongoing state violence, the involvement of the United States interference in uh, Colombia's affairs, which have created even more violence in the past week that has been seen all over the world in those videos that are kept up that social media hasn't deplatformed yet. So we're going to get started now. And I want to remind our panelists that they should speak between seven and 10 minutes. We start with James Jordan, who is co-director of the Alliance for Global Justice. He's the point person on Colombia and has been working on issues involving that nation since 2008. First of all, thank you very much for letting me be here today and letting me speak about this important topic. I want to uh, just right off the bat say that it's possible that other people on the panel, I, I would say it's probable that other people on the panel and in the audience today may be more informed than I am about the statistics and what's going on because so much of what I have heard and learned has come directly from people in the streets from their videos and sound clips and messages and I've just been so busy in contact with uh, our contacts. We at the Alliance for Global Justice have a very strong contacts in the Cali area and mobilizing solidarity that I haven't necessarily been always able to keep up with the flow of information. <laughs> but I, it's been a very, very trying time. More than anyone, I've been in contact with Darnay Rodriguez who coordinates the Francisco Isaias y Fuentes Human Rights Network, or REDVIC, in the department of the Valle de Calca, and who also coordinates the Centro Pacifico, which is a center that the Alliance for Global Justice helped found in Cali 
that provides uh, space for popular movements and meeting space and office space, lodging for displaced persons and social movement leaders under threat, and also lodging for human rights accompaniment. So uh, Darnay was the first person that reached out to me on April 28th when all the violence began in response to the national strike. And she was uh, reached out in tears pleading for help for the emergency in the streets and told me about the many wounded they are caring for. I just want to say that she's really representative of the bravery and courage of the people carrying on the struggle in the streets. Uh, it's been hottest in Cali. And on May 5th, I believe it was, she called me to check in about things after she had been beaten by the police. In fact, she was one of several human rights monitors who accompanied delegates from the UN High Commissioner's Office on Human Rights and the Colombian Ombudsman's Office to a police station where it had been reported that missing people were being held and they wanted to find out about these. The uh, police station only allowed the UN rep and the ombudsman's rep into the station while the others waited outside. While they were waiting outside, police shouted at them, threatened them, beat them, and told them that they were going to get killed. But even after this, that very night and the next morning, Darne was in touch with me out organizing. I just, uh, the commitment of the people is really incredible. But I just want to say that this is one of the most worrisome aspects of what's going on in Colombia right now. And that is that the Colombian Armed Forces and the SMAD riot police do not seem to even be respecting officially recognized human rights monitors. We've received reports on the ground of assaults and threats against Red Cross workers. I can't confirm this, but I've heard several of these reports. I've heard of uh, threats that have been made against members of the Ombudsman's office, and apparently these have been confirmed. The fact that the story I just related happened while they were accompanying UN officials indicates just how unusual, dangerous, and precedent-setting the current repression is. Okay, so what is the current situation? The repression got underway initially in response to the national strike on April 28th. And the strikers have had a variety, still have a variety of demands having to do with uh, labor rights, with ending austerity measures, demanding health care and an ad adequate response to the coronavirus, calling for free education, and for democratic and human rights to not be threatened, or human rights defenders, for democratic and human rights activists to not be threatened, displaced, jailed, and disappeared for their activities. The reality is that Colombia already was in a crisis well before the strike was called. Well over 1,000 social movement leaders have been killed ever since the peace accords were signed in 2016. And for over a year now, Social movement leaders and demobilized former insurgents have been being killed at a rate of more than one victim per day. And uh, they are killed one by one by paramilitaries, by members of the armed forces, and they are killed in massacres. And many of these massacres, uh, as often as not, are at the hands of the SMOD riot police. SMOD was created in 1999 as an initiative of the U.S. and Colombia via Plan Colombia, and it receives weapons and funding from the U.S. to this day. 
Between its beginning and September 9th of this year, it had been responsible for the deaths of, I forget, I think around 34 different protesters. On September 9th, there was a huge demonstration in Bogota after crowds witnessed a man beat to death by a policeman in the early morning hours. They took to the streets all over Bogota in demonstrations against the brutality and ESMAD and police killed 13 people that day. Since the violence began against the national strike in Colombia today, there are different statistics I'm hearing, but I just read an article in La Voz, which is uh, published by the Communist Party of Colombia, talking about more than 40 protesters that have been killed. I believe uh, I saw statistics for May 4th or May 5th that were 4.30, but there have been new killings just last night. Uh, there's been 1,773 cases of police violence recorded, more than 340 disappeared. The cities have been taken. Many people are calling this a coup by the Duque administration because the Duque administration is extremely unpopular. They have not been able to get some key initiatives through while they've been in office. And of course, his mentor, Alvaro Uribe, the father of the death squad movements and a narco trafficker himself, and one of the United States' so-called best friends, Uribe is on trial right now, is facing serious charges. So many people believe that this is a coup by the Duque administration against the popular movements, against civil government. We have to understand in all of this that the United States is utterly and completely complicit. Margaret mentioned uh, the participation of Colombia as a partner in NATO, something that began under the Obama and Biden administration. The Trump administration pushed with great eagerness to undermine key components of the peace accords. And in the midst of all this violence, in the midst of a situation where more than one person is being killed every day in political violence aimed against the left, Congress, with bipartisan support, passed a military and security aid package that was the highest in nine years, in the middle of all this. Well, we need to take action. If you go to the homepage of AFGJ, Alliance for Global Justice, AFGJ.org, there are a couple of articles on there right now that can tell you about actions that you can take. And we are also, you know, we're collecting funds, you know, for street medics and, and we collect about $4,000 so far to help out with the struggle in the streets. But we need to organize beyond this. We need to organize and demand that Congress stop funding violence in, in Colombia. We need to make sure that people know about Colombia. We hear all the time about Venezuela about terrible situations created by our own sanctions. But how many of us know about the thousands of people that have died of starvation in Colombia, in La Guajira, the thousands of indigenous children? How many of us know how many people are being killed every day with US support? We don't know about it. Why? Because Colombia is our best friend. We don't want regime change there, but we need to make it known. We need to make it loud and clear, and we need to build a popular movement for the peace of Colombia, 
for the peace of Latin America and for the peace of the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. Our next speaker is Charo Mina Rojas. She is a Colombian human rights defender with more than 25 years of activism, working with non-governmental and grassroots organizations in Colombia and internationally. Mina Rojas has served as national coordinator of advocacy and outreach in the U.S. for the Black Communities Process, Proceso de Comunidades Negras in Colombia, and was a founding member of the Afro-Colombia Solidarity Network based in the United States. She's a recognized human rights defender and leading Black feminist scholar. Taro Mina Rojas has authored several articles on the plight of Afro-Colombian women and women in Latin America. She's a trainer, public speaker, and writer. She has provided expert testimony on human rights before the committees of the United States Congress, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, and various organs of the United Nations, including the United Nations Security Council, where she became the first Afro-descendant woman to testify as such before the United Nations Security Council on racial and gender violence against Black and Afro-descendant women in Colombia and Latin America. Charo Mina Rojas. Thank you and greetings from the Black ancestral territories of life, joy, hope, and freedom. Thank you very much for um, the invitation and especially for opening up this, this uh, uh, venue to talk about Colombia. Um, I'm going to, to start with the last words uh, uh, from the person that preceded me in terms of the importance of uh, uh, knowing and paying more attention to what happened with the so-called best ally of the United States in the Latin American region, because effectively, as the United States considered consider the best ally, we need to understand why and what that means for the region and for the United States in particular. One thing that I would like to also address in terms of Colombia and the actual situation is uh, to complement the context that you just heard, is how is this population comprised? I think that's important to know that Colombia has the third largest Black African descent population in this region after Brazil and the United States. This is a country of 44 million people, almost 45 million people, and more than 20% quarter of this population is Black African descent people. And we have been here since late uh, 1500s. And since then, we have been struggling against these oppressive regimes uh, that we have been subjected to. We were maroons on those days when African people was brought to these territories under the pretension of being enslaved. Uh, and we have been maroons since then. In 1991, there was a change of the constitution, some amendment of the constitution, and we managed to get a particular um, article in this constitution that allowed us to develop a series of uh, legislation and recognition as people. And since then, we have the collective title of six million hectares of land titled collective. This is very, very important for us because as we have been in these territories for centuries, uh, holding 
natural resources, protecting the environment, protecting all the uh, resources that economic interest has their eyes on. We also have been struggling to stay alive and to be recognized as people. So part of the, those issues have put us at the center of some of this violence that is happening today, but has been happening for centuries. During the internal armed conflict, this is something important to know also, starting in the 50, 50 years ago, better to say, communities where, black communities were completely invisible. And suddenly, late 80s start coming all these economic interests on territories where we were located, but nobody cared before that we existed there. And since, since then, violence has been totally concentrated on these territories. So when we face this national strike today, we have to add, as Black African people, we have to add to the struggle in this national strike the centuries and the decades of struggle that we have having to defend the life and the territories where we have been located for, for all this time. And this is very important because these are also strategically in the region, and I, I'm, I'm glad that Margaret showed you that map. The Pacific Coast, if you go back to that map and see the line of the Pacific Coast, most of these collective lands are located there. But that line of Pacific Coast from Panama to Ecuador is also one of the richest national and biodiverse area in the world. We hold 10% of the natural biogenetic and natural resources in the world. And economic interests are focusing there. And when you see the map, you see how it's connected to through Panama to Central America to the United States. But also, there is a little spot called Buenaventura, the port of Buenaventura. You may hear the, the strike that we have in Buenaventura in 2015 that connects with all the parts, different parts uh, in the world economically. So we are very strategically located there. And those territories are of interest for many, many economic interests. So to connect this with uh, the national strike, we have been upfront on this strike also. And it is very important that when we hear these numbers of people that have, be, have been killed, people that have been injured that has been taken by the police disappeared, many of that people is black, particularly what has been happening at the center of this strike, which is Cali. Some of those neighborhoods where you see shootings and people being killed are uh, black neighborhoods. These black neighborhoods are comprised by people that have been displaced from these collective territories. So this is people, most of these people that has been forced to displacement, that have lost their lands to become, to uh, join the, the impoverishment and the disenfranchisement of these areas in the northern east areas of Cali and some in the southeast areas of Cali, which are the poorest in this city and the poorest in the country. This is the people that are today also in the, some of the spots that we are holding on the strike. I just came from one of them. Women mobilized today to protest 
against the killing of Jews, because also we have to know that many of the people that have been killed are Jews. It's people between 14 and 30 years old, young people, which is for us, we call it renacientes, our future. It's, those are our seats. And this is the people that is today the military target of this criminal government. So I don't know what, how much uh, time I have, Margaret, but I wanted to connect these realities also to pay attention when we talk about Colombia, to make sure that we understand that this is a country that holds quarter of its population as black with a, a, a whole history of a struggle that now has been struggling to contempt all those economic policies, all those militarization and militarized policies that the government want to impose in the territories, we have been holding those in our territories. Sometimes, as we have been always in this racist country, that situation is also uh, making it invisible and completely silent in the media. So it's very important for me to be here sharing this with you today, because we need to understand that when we want to mobilize and generate something, we have to understand the diversity and the different elements of the movement here and the different elements of the struggle in, in this country. This is one of them from the African descent people. We are now also striving to get the peace accord and the ethnic chapter of that accord implemented because that means for us to continue holding our presence and our process of self-determination on those collective territories. So I think I'm going to close here. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we will have plenty of time for conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Charles. Okay, and our next speaker is William Kamakaro, who is a Venezuelan American. And he's co-founder of the Al Alberto Lovera Bolivarian Circle of New York. He's an artist, a radio host, and activist in New York City. He is senior analyst at uh, the Council of Hemispheric Affairs. William Kamakaro. Thank you very much for having me here. I think that this is a very important webinar because what's going on in Colombia definitely is going to affect the entire region and the hemisphere. So since all these protests start again, the government of Ivan Duque, so we have been able to see demonstration in New York that has been huge. Today, there was a huge demonstration in Paris. And also another one is taking place right now in San Francisco. And I have some pictures already and it's a big demo. And then I think that tomorrow we will see an, another big demo in London and also in Spain. So basically all these huge demos that are taking place not uh, all over, even in, in South America and different places in South America, what this is talking to us is about the huge diaspora that has been created by more than 60 years of war, massacre, and disappearances that have been taking place in Colombia during all these uh, governments, supported by the United States and, and financed by the taxpayer of the United States. It's incredible to see, for example, when you go to Colombia, 
And you will see all these very sophisticated, fancy and chic magazines where they show all these, uh, some of those magazines dedicate pages to those glamorous Colombians that live in Paris, in New York, in London, but you don't see one single page dedicated to more than 5 million Colombians living in Venezuela. And it's incredible to see that because Venezuela has been one of the most affected by the war in Colombia. That a war that has not been recognized by Colombian governments and a war that has not, the United States don't want to recognize, is not willing to recognize. In the last five years, six years, we have been able to see an economy warfare that has been completely destroying the economy of Venezuela. And one of the countries that has been leading in supporting that war against the Venezuelan people has been Colombia with, of course, the support of the United States. And without any consideration, without thinking about all those Colombians that are living in Venezuela, these people in the government of Colombia have been talking for the past five years of the possibility of a military intervention on Venezuela. So obviously they don't care. Colombia, for example, the financial minister of Colombia uh, Mauricio Cárdenas, just in, in February 9, 2018, said that Colombia wants to build Venezuela's financial rescue plan. And they wrote a memo to the International Monetary Fund to get $60 billion to rebuild Venezuela in a post-era of President Maduro, post-era. Colombia this elite, the mafia elite that is leading the country don't care about his own, we can see that they don't care about his own people. They are worried. In February 13, 2018, the spectator of Colombia have an article called when those that are arriving from Venezuela, from Venezuela are Colombians. Because most of the people at that time, they were getting to, Colombia from Venezuela were originally people from Colombia escaping of the economic warfare that has been implemented in the United States and Venezuela. But not only that, Pastrana, the former president of Colombia, he's, he was extremely worried and he said and I tweeted at that time that if those Colombians living in Venezuela go back to Colombia, that would be an economic disaster for Colombia. So we can see that in the few days, we can see, for example, Duque basically blaming Maduro because what's going on in Colombia right now. We can see Lenny Moreno in Ecuador also with the same rhetoric and Mauricio Macri, former president of Argentina with the same rhetoric. And we can see Marco Rubio in his tweet and this past May 6th, he said, the violence occurring in Colombia this week is an orchestrated effort to destabilize a democratically elected government by left-wing narco-guerrilla movement and their international Marxist allies. So they, this is Marco Rubio, a congressman, a senate from the United States. So we can see also that in the middle of this incredible 
mess that's taking place in Colombia for us and Venezuela, looking what's going on in Colombia, it's a big opportunity to basically, uh, we have been inferring that we cannot expect anything from the United States, but we have been inferring that some changes have to take place because obviously the government of Colombia is not even capable to maintain power, to maintain power without killing thousands and hundreds of people. And that's something so obvious that even Human Rights Watch, even Interna uh, Amnesty International have been denouncing Duque government and all his the violence that the violence that they have been implementing against the, their own population. So basically, Colombia as a, one of the strongest USA allies in the region that is in a deep, deep trouble that wanted to buy just few days ago 20 F-16 without any money they wanted to, in, to get those 20 F-16 and his new financial minister as soon as he got, uh, he took office, he declared that they don't have resources to buy those F-16 airplanes. So they wanted, despite that they didn't have the resources to get the money from the working class, the Colombian working class, and to continue a war with the Venezuelan people, with the government of Venezuela. Basically, I, do, I think I have a main issue here. I think that we should, and this is a message from a Venezuelan living in New York that has all his family in Venezuela, to all the Colombians that are living in the United States, that I don't want a war between Venezuela and Colombia. I don't want to see Venezuelan people killing Colombian people because they are into uh, enterprise financed by United States. I think that is the need to get, uh, to fight together against USA imperialism and against USA intervention in Venezuela and also in Colombia. It's the only way to survive and to, give, and to maintain our resources and to live with dignity. This is a message that I want to leave here because I have been basically begging to the Colombian community to organize and to do something between both Venezuela and Colombia, because we are on the huge threat. Colombia already have nine military bases, and Colombia has been suffering for more than 60 years the occupation from the United States. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, William. Our final panelist is Ajamu Baraka. He was the Green Party vice presidential candidate in 2016. He was the founding executive director of the U.S. Human Rights Network, and he's currently national organizer and national spokesperson for the Black Alliance for Peace, a member of the UNAC Coordinating Committee and an editor of blackagendareport.com. Ajamu Baraka. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Margaret. And thank you, uh, UNAC, for organizing this very important conversation at, a, at the last minute. But I think that uh, UNAC, uh, like most of us, recognize the importance of having this conversation, being able to present information that people needed to have as they attempted to grapple with and understand what is unfolding in Colombia. You know, I want to start, I must shift a little bit with the last comments that our comrade William made from Venezuela in terms of the attempts to try to uh, link up with uh, progressive forces in Colombia, 
to uh, help them to understand more clearly the fundamental commonality of interest uh, between uh, uh, progressives and radicals, if you will, in Colombia and with the Bolivarian process in Venezuela. I raise that because I think that this experience is going to help people to understand those connections much better. People are seeing now that, you know, there's a major contradiction in the fact that uh, you have people who are concerned about what's happening in Colombia. And these elements that are concerned about what's happening in Colombia, and it's very important, are some of the same elements that have been relatively silent when it came to the destabilization and the aggressive war being waged by the U.S. against Venezuela. There's been mass confusion in and among progressives here in Latin America and clearly among progressives in North America. But perhaps this situation and the understanding of the terms of struggle in Colombia uh, will help people to grapple with their own confusion and contradictions. Colombia has been a major site of struggle between the forces of progress and reaction for decades, as our sister Chato laid out to us. Many of us have been involved in this struggle for quite some time, understanding that the struggle in Colombia has continental-wide importance. This situation with the peace accord and the possibility that there could be some changes in Colombia is of great importance for the entire region. And that's precisely why the United States of America, with its allies in Europe, have done almost everything that they could do to undermine the struggle for peace in Colombia and, in fact, the struggle for authentic uh, national sovereignty and self-determination in this region. It's important that we point this out because we, we're going to have people, we have people today in the U.S., who are uh, pretending that they're concerned about human rights in Colombia. These same elements that uh, have been protecting and propping up a fake president in Venezuela named Juan Guaido. It's important that we understand that while we are concerned about what's happening in Colombia, and we should, that those same elements that are pretending to be concerned about Colombia who are part of the U.S. state apparatus are the same entities the same interests that are supporting a dictatorship, a puppet government in Haiti. So we've got to make these connections and understand what it is we're up against and trying to bring about fundamental change here in the Americas. That's why here in the Black Alliance of Peace and in UNEC, we understand those connections. We understand that what we're up against is an imperialist apparatus that has common interests that are opposite to the common interests of the masses of the people. And that's how we have to understand Colombia, that this is just one particular manifestation of this long fight that's taking place here in this region. What we see in Colombia and with the national strike was the natural reaction from the years of neoliberal economic policies they have created the, the poverty and the suffering in this country and indeed in countries across this region, 
including in the United States of America. But what we had with the national strike here that we didn't have, for example, in the U.S., was with the George Floyd rebellion, partially motivated by people understanding that they were just a cog in the capitalist machine, that basically those police officers who had their knee on George Floyd's neck were really a metaphor for the knee on the necks of all of us by the capitalist dictatorship. So that pivot from understanding that it wasn't just about George Floyd, but about neoliberal capitalism, the kind of natural radicalization that took place or should have taken place to, to radicalize the opposition in the US, it didn't take place, but it took place here in this country, in Colombia. So the, the contradictions of neoliberalism, the contradictions of the absence of real democracy and people-centered human rights, these are the motivating forces that are driving the resistance here in this country. So we say to everyone, if you're concerned about Colombia, and you should be, you have to share a concern about what's happening in Venezuela. You cannot be silent about what is unfolding today also in Haiti. We raise the question in the Black Alliance of Peace. We say, look, we, we are happy that there's now a more attention on Colombia. But we raise the question, is it because there are massive numbers in Colombia in terms of the opposition that's different from what we saw in Haiti? And we say, no. Is there more violence in Colombia than what we saw in Haiti? No, not at all. So what is the difference? What is the fact that it can help explain why we have such a massive response for Colombia and relative silence for Haiti. Why is it that, that Colombia can penetrate the bourgeois media, but cannot penetrate from Haiti the bourgeois media? What is the factor? I think we all know, and I think Sister Chato touched on it, because in a weird way, what has happened with the Colombia struggle is it has been deracialized also with black folks being pushed into the background, the narrative being some other kind of sort of traditional Latin America, you know, racial democracy BS, you know? And in some ways, the Northern left, including the US, have embraced this sort of left version of white saviorism, okay? So we say, if you're concerned about what's happening in Colombia, and I know you are, we've got to also confront social imperialism among the left in the US. We've got to deal with and confront and defeat white supremacist ideology. We've got to confront and defeat US centrism, okay? These are all elements that we have to deal with in the context of the United States of America, itself a settler colonial project. So we say, if you wanna support the people of Colombia and support the people in Latin America, get into an organization, support anti-imperialist project, join UNAC. If you're an African, join the Black Alliance for Peace. If you're non-African, you can join the BAP Solidarity Network, but get involved understanding the terms of the struggle, understand that these wars of imperialism, we say in the Black Alliance for Peace, 
and the Black is Back Coalition, we say our responsibility in North America is to turn imperialist wars into wars against imperialism. That is our responsibility. That is our task in Colombia, in Venezuela, in Haiti, and globally. Thank you. So we have some questions in the Q&A, and these questions would be for any of our panelists who want to take them. First question, why does the U.S. maintain and support the oppressive dictatorship in Colombia? Is it A, to maintain U.S. hegemonic control of the world, B, some financial gain to American capitalists, C, fear of the establishment of a free democratic country, D, all of the above, or something else? Who would like to take this question? I think we should take that in, in, in very quickly because I think that the question itself also provided the answers. We all know, we all know it's all, all of the above, okay? So we appreciate those comments to basically help to crystallize this even more. But it's all about U.S. hegemony. It's all about the control of the world by the pan-European colonial capitalist white supremacist project. And we know that the only way that we're going to defeat this project is through massive struggle. And we know that it's going to be pushed back from the enemies of, of humanity coming from that same pan-European colonial project. So, you know, it's all the above, you know, and so I think the task for us on this call, I think it's quite clear, but other people might, might, might want to comment. Anyone else want to speak on this? I just want to say, yeah, it, uh, I agree. It's all the above. And the thing is about uh, Columbia, Tim, that's really important just to understand the degree it has become a partner in empire worldwide. It is, as, you, as we saw by the map, coasts on the Atlantic side, on the Pacific side. It's a doorway to Latin America. But Colombia, under the Obama administration, entered into a special relationship with the United States that has had it patrolling its troops, patrolling with U.S. troops, coast and airspaces of West Africa, of Central America. They have become part of NATO. They've sent troops to Yemen. They've sent troops to Afghanistan. And Colombia has trained, I don't know exactly, but something like 50,000 uh, soldiers, police, and uh, jail personnel around the world, especially in Latin America or in Central America and Mexico. So Colombia has become an intimate partner to the U.S. NATO empire, and that's why it has a special significance for the United States. I think I would like to add briefly also the link to coca growth and narco-traffic. I mean, I don't think it is a, a secret how the United States have been using uh, narco-traffic as a source of, of uh, financing many operations in, in different countries to destabilize states. And as we well, I, I, would, I shouldn't say we because I am not, but as these governments are completely surrendered to the, uh, to the will of the United States, totally depending on the resources and serving uh, militarily also to the uh, will of the United States. We also have not only the economic and nat natural resources that I mentioned, but we also have this heaven of coca production that we should question why is that after 15 years of Plan Colombia policy that has put more than $15 billion in this country, mostly to 
military operations and militarization still can control the growth of coca and the narco-traffic. So I think we should also connect this uh, interest of the United States on a country that also provides not only the natural resources, the mineral resources, and governments that are ready to do whatever the United States wants, but also this source of tech that makes so sustainable war and this imperialistic interest of the, of the United States. The next question is, how is the general strike developing? The strike is going on. As I say, I just came from, from one of the spots in Cali. Uh, the news everywhere was that people continued on the streets. Last night, we had in Cali more shootings and more killing and injury of people. And one of the, the points the, uh, that we are holding today, people concentrate on the main point called Puerto Resistencia, the port of resistance. And people from Northern Del Cauca, indigenous and the Maroon Guard are joining also at that spot. So mostly the strike is going to continue, perhaps not the same intensity that was in the past days, but different sectors are coming out every day to hold the spots and they hold the pressure. One of the things that I think is important to mention or, or maybe say it again, is that this government wants to declare a state of emergency because it's the, the, the way to totally militarize the country and take over by military control the streets and, the, and, and attack people. However, they have been trying to push the strike in the people to the limits with these attacks, with these shootings, but people is holding very well in a more peaceful way, resisting and sometimes contesting as we need, but um, holding, holding the spots. Apparently, Duque is going to open up for some dialogues. We have to say from the African perspective, we don't trust those dialogues. We have several agreements with past governments that haven't been fulfilled. We have a peace accord, we have an ethnic chapter, we have many different conversations that haven't brought bring us to any specific results. There are two heavy economic interests here. This is a government that wants to help the economic powers, not people. And we understand that we are the enemies of this government. So there is resistance and people continue to be holding the struggle. I think numbers were given earlier in terms of the people killed and the people arrested. Many, many are disappeared. And something I would like to call attention to is it is very important to raise the question of how many of that people is black. It is very important that we stop making invisible the blood of black people in these struggles. Thank you. I'd like to move on so we can try to get in all our questions. The military, U.S. military presence in Colombia. Are U.S. forces participating directly in the violent state of repression, participating either directly or indirectly? And the same person asked, did Williams say there were actually five military bases? So are there any, what is the U.S. military presence? Are there actual military bases, U.S. 
there? And if so, how many? Who wants to take that? I could talk a little bit about that. Uh, just, you know, uh, I know the top of my head. William said, I believe, nine military bases. Truth is, the uh, U.S. military has access to him anywhere they want to go, you know. And again, one has to understand the presence of the U.S. in terms of the degree to which Colombia itself acts as a proxy for the, for the U.S. elsewhere. But I can say that the highest concentrations of troops in Colombia and of also of U.S. advisors are in the southwest in the region that includes Cali and along the border with Venezuela. And uh, one has to understand that when Duque himself went into office, right before he took office and right after he took office, he went to Florida to visit with the people at Southern Command. While he was taking office, there was a changeover in the leadership of the Southern Command. And I believe I'm correct in saying that the last place the commander of the Southern Command visited was Columbia. And the first place the new commander visited was Columbia. So I don't think... I don't know of anything about U.S. troops actually taking part in uh, the repression right now. But again, all of this is happening with U.S. funding, U.S. advice, U.S. training. I remember one time being in the hills in Colombia, way out in the country, and a uh, Colombian military coming to where we were meeting, uh, suddenly coming in on the, the town, and they are all carrying... Uh, canteens marked USA. I remember hearing anecdotally about Colombian troops committing massacres in the Naya region between, say, you know, in the mountains between Cali and Buenaventura, actually a little north. But a massacre that was happening, uh, friends of ours were actually there giving a human rights training. And, well, not a massacre, but, uh, but the military came in uh, attacking and they talked about there were like a very gringo looking advisors with the Colombians. So this is the general atmosphere going on here in regards to U.S. involvement. The Colombian military does nothing that the U.S. doesn't know about, basically. That sums it up. Lest we forget there are 800 U.S. military facilities around the world. Next question. Please speak to the links of activists who are taking the struggle to the streets of Bogota and other cities and left-wing elected officials in the tradition of Congressman and unionist Wilson Borja, who are pushing for change from within the system. Well, if, if I understand correctly the question, I'm sorry. If there is a link between some of the people that is protesting and political leaders like Wilson Borja and others, th there are many of the sectors that organize, that come together to organize, organize the strike are linked to alternative forces and leadership in the country. However, there is also a significant amount of people just from the masses, you know, that is not necessarily specifically linked to any particular party or leadership. It's just people tired and very important, a lot of young people. And one of the reasons is because young people has no future in this country. 70% of the young people in this country has no access to health, has no access to education, has no access to uh, jobs. 
and are completely are not recognized. And a lot of that people is today on the streets. I can tell you that from now on, some people is going to start taking more specific side perhaps, and we can look for next elections in a some different way. But there are different different links to different sectors here from the organizers and the people that is on the streets today. Thank you. Thank you, Charo. Next question. Could someone address what are the revolutionary indigenous and social justice organizations that are organizing the resistance? This is a jungle. You know, one thing about this work here in the region that people have to be reminded of who are still in the north is that there's relative space for certain kinds of oppositional work in some places like in Colombia the danger level for oppositional forces are a little bit more intense than we might find right now in North America. It's getting that way in North America, but right now there's more quote-unquote democratic space, if you will. So there are a number of forces that are involved in oppositional politics here in, in this space. There are forces that are responsible for organizing this national strike. So if anybody else wants to talk more specifically than, than they can, but I think we need to keep you know, the stuff in mind when we talk about these different spaces that that we are operating in, especially when we're trying to provide solidarity uh, and protection for folks. Any predictions about uh, the current struggle and how it's going to play out in the coming weeks and months? Well, I can start to say that basically the struggle will, will definitely continue, but we have to be, and we have to understand that because the stakes are so significantly high that while the government probably will enter into some kind of dialogue with whatever forces, we remember that this is a, the contradictions here are structural and historical, and that you're not going to resolve the issues of grinding poverty, of the lack of autonomy among uh, with, with various groups, with the challenge of uh, real sustainable economic development without real fundamental change in this country and throughout the global south and indeed in the north. These contradictions are not going away. They're only going to intensify because the global dictatorship, they have no, no answers beyond public relations stunts. Okay, And that's why we know that as the contradictions continue to, to sharpen, that the reliance on naked force becomes more of an instrument that will be used, that is being used and will be used even more. So we are in for a protracted struggle in Colombia, in Haiti, in, in Brazil, in North America, in Jamaica, around the world. Because basically, you know, the conditions we are all facing collectively are the consequences of a few hundred years of this colonial capitalist project that's coming to and head. And so the contradictions now just not just now between labor and the working class, as important as that is. But the real contradiction today is between the northern colonial capitalist white supremacist project and collective humanity. Thank you, gentlemen. Charo, did you want to add something? Just briefly, uh, as I say, well, the struggle is going to continue. 
we are absolutely sure that there is going to be an escalation of the, uh, you know, these these uh, measures and this kind of uh, policy of war that this government has imposed on people. We have to be very aware of the criminalization of the organizers of the strike and the people that have been on the street. Hundreds have been detained. And although there are some support, there is no enough to support and bring attention to the number of people that have been retained. And also many have been disappeared and maybe also in the hands right now of police that we, we, we can't tell for sure. So the other things that come besides this or part, or as part of the struggle is to follow up on all these situations, you know, we have to follow up and continue pressuring for investigations on the killings of people. We have to look after the people that have been detained and the people that has this have disappeared. As I said before, for us, it's very, very important to know how many of that people is, is Black and from the Black neighborhoods. So we are trying and thinking on, on how to, to put together mechanisms to follow up and investigate also how the, uh, many of these people is actually from black communities. And also there is going to be the need, as I think uh, Ajamu said, to start connecting dots between the different situations and the struggles in this region. I think to pay attention to Brazil and Haiti is very, very important as we pay very close attention as how things are developing in Colombia, because all this is connected. And also we following up on, on Biden's policies toward Colombia, because right now he's playing a, a like kind of nice card, but, you know, considering the interest in the re long-term relationship of Colombia with the United States, we cannot use the attempt, you know, or, or, or believe really that things are going to be different. There are way too many interests on this. Next question is regarding Colombian politics. When are the next presidential elections? Who would be running? Would President Duque be running for re-election? He's been president for a while, I believe. They're uh, roughly okay. a year from now. Uh, I'll, I'll defer to Charo. I'm sure she knows more, but uh, they're roughly a year from now. Duque's supposed to run. He'll probably run against Petro. Uh, Gustavo Petro is the main left, center-left opposition candidate, and he's looking to lose. This is part of the reason that people are calling this uh, assault right now is something of a coup, but I'll, let me turn it over to Charo. I'm sure she knows more. No, you were right. This president was elected in 2018. He goes until 2022nd, so next year we will be holding elections. Right now, there is a coalition of people from the left, with lead mostly by uh, Gustavo Petro, um, a coalition of different forces. And then there is a large independent sector, right now led by Francia Marquez, which are kind of pulling for this uh, next campaign or the coming campaign. So 2022, next year, is the next election. It is very clear that although right-wing forces are pretty strong and the reason he was elected in 2018 is because those elections were under the gun 
basically, um, this is going to be a completely different process and, and campaign. I just wanted to add that we can expect anything from the elite in Colombia from this coming election. Just a few months ago, they wanted to extend Duque period on power. So that was not approved, but they are looking for ways to stay in power. So we should be aware and look, pay attention closely to what's going to happen in the coming months. Thank you. Thank you, William. Our next question about is about the role of trade unions in the current movement and FARC. What are their roles in the, the uh, events happening currently? Well, of course, trade unions have been very important because they're in a central part. The CUT, the CUT, the largest uh, confederation, is a central part of the strike committee. And uh, concerns about labor have been uh, a fundamental part of the demands. I will just say this, though, that the most persecuted unions in Colombia, the Finsuagro Confederation of Campesino Trade Unions in Colombia, who have lost something, I don't know, like exactly 1,500, 1,000 to 1,500 people over the existence of their life has received very little in the way of solidarity from U.S. trade unions. And I just want to call attention, we're taking a delegation of trade unionists in Colombia in August to meet with unions there about how we can support the uh, movement there and the demands of the strike and demands of labor everywhere and to really uh, build a U.S. solidarity with Colombian trade unions that is independent of the U.S. government-funded Solidarity Center, which has actually worked against solidarity with uh, class-conscious trade unions like Finsuagro and invite any unionists to join us for that. Thank you. How would you describe the current situation for indigenous populations in Colombia? Indigenous and, and, and Afro-descendant people in Colombia are severely impacted by the war that has been happening here in general. Since 2016, when the peace accord was signed, reorganization of armed forces between paramilitary, narco-traffic, uh, in collusion with, with military forces, have been encroaching the indigenous and Afro-descendant communities. And 40% of the attacks against social leaders, human rights defenders, are against uh, indigenous and Afro-descendant people. And th there is also a severe increase on disappearances and killing of, of young people. And I, I cannot stress this enough. Young people is right now, as it is women, the center of this uh, violence and this war. We, uh, the Black Communities Process, documented just, documented just last year 440 cases of violence against Black Afro-descendant people in the country. And we had three massacres of youth last year, uh, 17 youth killed. In, in, in the matter of two months, um, 90 people had been assassinated between 19 and 30 years old in this country, all of them black. And the same is for the indigenous people who has been mostly concentrated in the Cauca region, all these attacks against uh, indigenous leaders. 
So the situation for us here is, is very complicated, very dangerous. People is criminalized. Now the Maroon and Indigenous Guards are also called terrorists. And the Minister of Defense is calling the young people the war machines. That says a lot in a country where young have become the, the military target of, of many uh, police and, and military operations. And also the young women, young indigenous and black women, um, the center of sexual violence, very, very young from the age of six, eight years old. I'm talking about babies, which for us, as I say earlier, is very significant because what we feel is that our renaissances, our seeds have been attacked. And we are about to call this a genocide. You know, we are at the center of this war, not just this strike, but generally speaking. And they are now focused on our seeds, our renaissances, the people that is going to be holding these flags of a struggle once we are no anymore up front. So it is very, very dangerous. I've seen in the chat people are giving information about solidarity protests. Is there any, um, or, or perhaps somebody has already put in the chat or could again, is there any central clearinghouse where people can get information about solidarity events? Not yet, Margaret, but that provides a, a quick entry point to remind people that Black Alliance of Peace is in fact expanding its work into, into Latin America. And one of the countries we are working with is Colombia. So Colombia and Brazil, along with Haiti, represent the first phase of our expanded work. So we will have the capacity to be able to provide up-to-date information on Colombia once that work is in fact consolidated. So please be on the lookout for that. Someone asks about the situation in Apure, A-P-U-R-E, in Venezuela, with the Colombian paramilitary drug trafficking operation. Is anyone familiar with that? Basically, a dissident group of the FARC that was working with the Colombian intelligence penetrated the Apure state, and they basically were processing cocaine in Venezuelan territory. They were also putting mines all over their campaign, the, the place where they were located. And also what basically happened is that the military, the, the army took over all the area, arrested around 40 members of the paramilitary group. And there was a confrontation where around 12 uh, Venezuelan soldiers died in, in that amount of period. It's a very interesting conflict because it looks like they want to introduce the Colombian conflict to Venezuela, the paramilitary and narco-traffic to Venezuela. It's not only in, in Puerto there's also some problems. Venezuela has been facing some similar problems in La Guajira, that is an area in the Surya state. But for right now, it's uh, under control by the state. The question is about Cuba and its history of independence from U.S. control, what role might it play in the struggle for independence in Colombia and elsewhere? It's an interesting question because the U.S. is obviously aware of that. That's one of the reasons 
The U.S. has been at war against Cuba for the past 60 years. But does someone want to tackle this issue of those countries that would be in solidarity with people's struggles and uh, their ability to do so given U.S. hostility towards them? Yes, Chara. Just briefly, because I know that several of you would like to respond to this question. I mean, Cuba has been in solidarity with Colombia, for instance, for the peace accord. Cuba is one of the two countries, uh, well, three with Chile and Norway, that uh, were the guarantors of the peace accord with FARC. And then they offer to be also guarantors for the dialogues with ELN. But last year, early this year, now I can't remember, but they took over Cuba, spelled out the ambassador and um, just following up, you know, U.S. Uh, Trump's orders, not really Trump, U.S. orders, took action against uh, the government of Cuba, uh, demanding that they turn back the people from ELN that was there. So Cuba has been always open and very supportive of the Colombian struggle. Now, it, I think it is a, also an action of the international community to kind of surround uh, um, Cuba, to support Cuba and, and this, um, this effort to support Colombia so they can actually have a better and strongest role. Supported by the international community, particularly the movements and um, more progressive people, but you understand the role that the United States is playing in all this. If I can add, I, th I think it's important as we are making all of these various connections here in the, in the region to remind ourselves that of course, Cuba is a key state, no question about that, but that the real point of contention for the U.S. in terms of its attempt to try to control politics in the region was in fact Venezuela. It was Venezuela that was providing a lifeline to Cuba and not the other way around. It is to undermine Venezuela that the U.S. understood it could perhaps destabilize the entire region, the entire region. The connection to the struggles we have raised in Haiti is also connected to the lifeline that was provided to Haiti from Venezuela. The enemy understood that, you know, as part of their strategy, they have this thing called full spectrum dominance in which they identify regional forces, a regional state that might serve as a counter to the U.S. complete dominance of a region. In Africa, it was what state? It was Libya. We saw the consequence there. In the Americas and, and the, the, the southern part of the Americas, it was Venezuela, okay? So that link between Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, at one point Ecuador, and the progressive forces in this region, you know, became the target for U.S. destabilization intensifying, of course, under the Bush administration, but even more so under your first black president, Barack Hussein Obama, okay? So we've got to remind ourselves of these connections and remind ourselves of the bipartisan nature of this process in North America and, and not be confused by that at all. 
And that engage in conversations like what we saw a year or so ago, uh, some months ago, where you have the U.S. actively undermining Bolivia. And instead of left forces being in opposition to that, they sit around the tables at Starbucks negotiating and, and talking about the inner contradictions in, Bol- in Bolivia. See, that's the kind of nonsense we've got to deal with in North America. You know, that's why we, we refer to them as the latte left. Okay. So we've got to get serious about this, the terms of the struggle, because, you know, people are suffering every day and we, they don't have the luxury that folks in North America have to sit around at their cocktail parties and talk in front, you know, like they're real revolutionaries. Thank you for making that point, Ajamu. I will uh, I'll close us out with, uh, oh, did William, you wanted to say something? Basically, John Bolton, a few years ago, he said that the Troika of the evil were Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. Just a few months ago, the Minister of Defense in Colombia said that they need those F-16 to defend themselves from Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. They were surrounded by communist regime and they, had, they, they are under threat. That's what he said for those communist regimes. So is Colombia the country that has been used by the United States to basically dismantle the entire regional integration? And one of the first institutions that was completely dismantled by United States using the Colombian elite was the UNASUR. The UNASUR that was a union of South America country that was confronting all the corporate interests of United States and the region has been completely dismantled thanks to the role that Colombia as a member played inside of the organization. I think that it's very important not only to, to think about it, I think that also, as Ayamu has mentioned several times, I think that the situation in Haiti is a very difficult situation. No one has been talking about it. No one in the media is mentioning what's going on right now in Haiti. Even when this uh, protest started in Colombia, it took several days to the mainstream media to pay attention to Colombia. Imagine if the same situation that happened in Colombia uh, is happening right now, happening in Venezuela. The mainstream media will just take over the entire news and, will you, and you will be just listening to news about Venezuela. So it's obvious a big interest, regional interest in South America and especially the, the role that Colombia is playing in between Venezuela, Ecuador, Bolivia, is extremely uh, important for the United States. And I'm very sure that they right now are desperate because of what's happening in Colombia. I just want to follow up with what Ajamu said. It's uh, the left here haven't succeeded in doing uh, very much just yet. So that means we should be very hesitant to judge other people. And our job is to fight imperialism around the world even as we struggle here in our movements. So I would just amplify that statement. And I want to thank everybody. I want to thank those of you who joined us. We had a very short period of time to put this together, but we thought it was, uh, UNAC thought it was important and Black Alliance for Peace thought it was important. So I want to thank, uh, you didn't see Joe Lombardo from UNAC, but he is behind the scenes and uh, helped us to put this together very quickly. Thank you, Joe. 
I want to thank all our panelists, James Jordan, Charo Mina Rojas, Ajamu Baraka, and William Kamakaro for joining us today. I thank you all and please follow UNAC, please follow Black Alliance for Peace. There is a link on uh, Facebook. And so you can see if you want to, if in case you missed anything or you just want to binge watch again, you can uh, go back and see it on the UNAC, uh, UNAC's Facebook page. Thank you all very, very much. Solidarity. Thank you. Power to the people. Thank you very much, Yunak. Peace. Thank you. <laughs> Thank no compromise, no retreat. There you go. <laughs> Hasta la victoria siempre. <laughs> yeah.